I am really excited that we get to speak with Andy Lang today and really dive into this idea of contemplative prayer some more. So, um, first of all, you want the stool or do I, I get it? I take the stool. Okay, fine. All right, we don't have two. All right, uh, so first, can you give us a sense of who you are, what this project is that you started called Patmos, all that kind of stuff? Um, as you can tell, I am very young, so I'll start with that as a disclaimer. Um, I, if you couldn't tell, um, the reason I start with that as a disclaimer is that I am traveling a path that is just as rocky and I have no idea where I'm going, um, and that is really important to me when we talk about contemplation. Um, it's also important to me um, to start with that because I make, I make mistakes and I don't know what's happening, um, and there is great power in accepting that that our egos can't control things. Um, and that's where I start. So, the reason I, um, I, a few years ago, I was a member of a church uh, up in Seattle and I came home one day and I sat down with my brother and we just kind of stared out a window and we said, we didn't feel anything today in Sunday's worship. And then we paused and we then said, actually, we don't know if we've ever felt anything in Sunday worship. And my dad's a pastor, so that wasn't great. Uh, <laughs> but we started brainstorming what would a service look like, what would an experience look like that actually um, hit us in the chest, you know, that actually created a heart stirring, a heart feeling, a warming. Um, and we didn't know the words for it at all, but we started creating what turns out is a contemplative service of silence, of chant, um, and really this idea of resting with God, um, and that it's not a cerebral game, it's not your intellectual venture that you get to think about God, um, it's that you're simply resting with God and, um, and living in that experience. And so we went, to, uh, we, we went with that idea to some other lay leaders in that church um, and said, would we like to start something like this? And it evolved into Thursday nights um, sitting around a circle in chairs um, and just experiencing seven to ten minute silences together in the dark with candles and then doing a teze like we've been doing coming out of it and then going right back into silence and having scripture readings. Um, and we didn't know if that was going to be you know, three or four people sitting in a circle in the dark in church at 7.30 at night. What it turned out to be really quickly though was 25 people that were really called deeper and had similar experiences of We've been told we should go to church our whole lives, but we, need, we feel like there's something deeper as well. Um, and so that was the formation of, Pat, of the Patmos community. Um, it was a group, of, uh, it's a group of kids that had this idea, and about a month later we found out that whether you were 20, 40, 60, or our, uh, the oldest person that came through was 94, and sitting in a circle, and all of us said, this is what the church is supposed to be. This is an intergenerational, interracial community um, that is living God together um, in experience. What is it about contemplative prayer that you're so passionate about, both either individually or as a community? Um, for me, what contemplation really gets down to is that you're leaving the cerebral game. Um, for example, in church, um, most of us have been taught to pray um, very ritualized prayers. Um, so, for example, the Lord's Prayer. Um, and that usually it ends with just, here are words that you say. This is the catechism. 
Um, or, or prayer is, I'm lifting up my share, you know, my joys and concerns, and I'm asking you to pray for me, pray for me, and then an hour later you can't remember what someone said. And so what I wanted to get at, what really matters to me with contemplation is being able to rest in that prayer space. The idea that prayer isn't just a moment um, of thinking about God, but it's actually when we leave those doors and we see the tree outside, we realize, oh my God, this is a God moment. You know, this is an, every single experience we have, this is God. Um, and I'll give a quick story about this, is that um, I was walking in the forest one day, and I know, I know there are people in this room that have had the same experience. Um, walking in the forest, um, or anywhere in nature, and there's a, there's a breeze coming at me. And I just kind of paused, and I shut my eyes, and I felt this breeze, and you realize, this is what it feels like to be content with everything. Just having that breeze come past you and realizing this is a special moment. That, even though we might not use the vocabulary for it, that's a God moment. Um, that, that is unceasing prayer. Um, that, is, that is prayer in real life, not just prayer once a week in a church. Um, and so that's, that's what contemplation means to me, is that to get, you know, there's a space for prayer in church but then moving into the world to the point where you can actually have an idea of, I'm praying, um, I'm never stopping that prayer. Everywhere I go, I'm feeling God, I'm recognizing God. And sometimes it really doesn't work. So, sometimes you stub your toe and you have your moment of, ah! And then you pause and you realize, life keeps going. And maybe this can be a God moment too. <laughs> so I'm curious, so tying into that, um, what, what are we doing when we're sitting here in silence. Because, so I'm sure some people are being like, okay, let me see if I can telep, you know, uh, magically pull up what the football score is. Some people are you know, being like, I'm kind of bored. Some people get something else out of it. What, what do you understand that we're doing in the silence prayer? What I think is really important about silent prayer um, is that we have mostly all been trained to think of prayer as a transaction. Um, from the time we're very young um, through, through our entire adult stages, we think of prayer often as, um, God, I'm having a really hard time, please help me. Um, I'm, or, or I'm sending my praises, please send something back. Um, or I pray in that I'm going to go talk to God. The problem with all of this is that if there's no perceived response, it's really easy to say, I'm not going to pray anymore because the transaction, that promise of a transaction hasn't been fulfilled. And so what's important to me about silence is that it's not a transaction game. When we're sitting in silence, um, you shouldn't be thinking, well, you know, please God, send me, send me um, you know, I'm having a really hard time, send me something, although that has its place. What we're really doing in silence is resting with God. One way to do that is what I, what I practice is centering prayer. And so when I go into silence, I take about 10 seconds and I think of a word, a holy word. Um, for me, it's usually the word union. Um, it could be love, it could be um, togetherness, contentness, you know, any, any word that you, you have. And what I do with that word is that I center on that word, I anchor on that word. And when I start feeling all these other thoughts hit me, you know, the monkeys in the head start going, you go, okay, I don't need those thoughts. I'm gonna gently return to my word. And so, first five or six minutes usually, pretty tough. The monkeys are battling hard. 
in your head. Um, but once you get past that point, um, what I think is powerful is there is a chunk of time where you realize, oh, 20 minutes just went by, and I was feeling completely at peace. Um, and so that, that's, I'll give an example. Um, so I, I teach uh, high school, 11th and 12th grade US studies, and in the mornings on Tuesdays and Thursdays, I have 15-minute meditation sessions with my kids. Um, not tied to religion necessarily, but just times of silence. And just neurologically and behavioral-wise, it will do wonders. The great mystics of Christianity um, and of a lot of religions, most religions, knew what they were talking about when they said we should sit, you know, we should sit and pray. It is really important, um, just in terms of how we then go about our days. One of the things that uh, a number of people that hear about contemplative prayer uh, and an objection they come up with um, that you've heard, I'm sure, is that, oh, it's all just individual. It's just me being, you know, in a silo, just kind of, it's all about me and my relation, my union or my relationship with the divine. Um, how do you respond to that? Does contemplative prayer have anything to do with our interactions with other people or with society? The first reading we did today, um, the, the Be Still and Listen to the Walls, uh, was written by Thomas Merton. And he had um, the best imagery that I have ever found for this, for why contemplation and action go together, even though it's a total paradox or seems that way. And he gives the image of a pool, a pool of water. And this is the pool of contemplation. And from that pool comes a stream and that's the stream of action. And that if either of them dry up, the other one does too. If the pool of contemplation, if your prayer life dries up, if you don't um, work on nurturing your prayer life, your action eventually will too. This is why we have so many activists um, in our local scenes that um, end up completely um, getting exhausted and tired at the end of the day and day after day. Eventually you burn out because you don't have that reservoir to draw upon. Um, and it's the same thing the other way around, is that if you have no action and you're just praying all the time, um, then there is a, um, there's a wall between you and humanity. And God says that creation is good. And so the, the idea that this is all about a silo, um, the, the monks who first went, went into the desert back in the 200s, um, they went out alone eventually, or originally. Within 25 years, they started coming together in communities. And it's because they realized that they couldn't do it alone. And that prayer is a communal thing. We notice in the, um, in the Our Father, um, it starts with our. It's not my father. This isn't a singular prayer. Most of our prayers, in fact, all of the prayers in the original Catholic uh, catechism, all of them are community prayers. And I think that's really important to understand is that prayer is a communal act of solidarity. Um, and usually I'll, I'll come across the words silence, um, solitude, and stillness. And that is the kind of the three big words behind contemplation. I always add solidarity. Um, because when we're able to come together, think about what we're doing today. We're coming together in a room on Bainbridge Island and praying together and sharing our lives together. There is no separation between prayer and community. There is none. Mm. I'm a little annoyed at you. You um, didn't make an easy segue for me. Um, <laughs> dang it. All right. So, um, so 
a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago or something, we talked for like an hour and a half, and just, we're just geeking out about this stuff. It was wonderful. It was, um, it was geeky. It, it was. It was, <laughs> it was excellent stuff. Um, and so we talked about incarnational theology. So can you, first of all, tell, that, tell us what the heck it is, um, this incarnational theology, and like what it has to do with any of this stuff that we're talking about? Um, at the base of all, at the base of all contemplation, um, but honestly, at the base of our entire religion, has to be um, that God is in us in some way, right? And that when we walk outside, God is in this place that we reside. And it's not um, that God is the tree, but God is in the tree. There is a divine spirit um, that is throughout all of creation and throughout us. That's what makes us. That's what gives us a reason and a purpose. It's not that. You know, our, it's not that some man in the sky has told us you're going to be humans and then die and then come home with me, right, and come hang out in heaven. It's that God has chosen to come down and be within our communities and within our creation. And so when we talk about incarnational theology, it's being able to recognize that in every moment, in every person, and in everything that's around us, God is also there. It makes it really hard when you live in the city driving anywhere on the freeway to remember that. Uh, <laughs> I will be very honest. Um, but but um, this is one of my examples of this, is that um, when I first, uh, when, when Patmos first started, I tested out an experiment. And I said to myself, whenever I'm driving in Seattle um, and I start getting angry at the drivers around me, I'm going to say, I'm going to take a deep breath, and I'm going to say, they're on the path too. As simple as that, and it sounds really simple, um, but just that moment will keep you from getting out of your car and yelling at people. Um, and, and it also will cause you to remember that there's a connection between you. You don't know their names, you don't know where they come from, you don't know who they are in any way, but there's solidarity built in already um, because we're all just trying to make it and that there is a spark of divinity within each of us. I think this is also really important on a theological basis um, when we talk about Jesus Christ that um, I come from the liberal church. Um, that's how I grew up. And one of the things that the liberal church did is we've pretty much removed Christ from the picture. Um, when we talk about Jesus, we talk about the historical Jesus, the very academic look at Jesus. Um, and one of the problems with doing that is that you forget that within each of us, there is both human and divine. There's Jesus and there also is Christ. Um, and so if you rip Jesus and the Christ away from each other, you miss out on the archetype. You miss out on the fact that just like Jesus had humanity and divinity within in him, each of us have humanity and divinity within us, which makes it really hard to then say, we're going to go to war. It makes it really hard to say, we're going to go commit crimes, because you recognize that there's divinity within each of us, and what we do to each other, we do to God in some ways. And I, I think uh, one of the things that we talked about before, just to wrap up, is um, the implications of that, which you hinted at at the end, of just for social relations. So let's take, for example, uh, one of the things we've been talking about quite a bit, um, Black Lives Matter the, um, and the killing of black bodies. If we understand the divine to be in each of us, and when I'm looking at you, I'm looking at the face of God in some way, then that means that we, there are no expendable people. There are, we cannot devalue particular bodies 
um, in the way that we've learned how to do as a culture. I, I think it's also a call to the church. Um, and this is, this is really my passion uh, for contemplation and trying to find a place in local churches. Um, you know, I, I launched Patmos up at University Temple in Seattle, um, but I'm also talking with some other churches and saying, you know, and I, and I hosted, uh, some of you might know Richard Rohr. Every summer he has um, a, uh, an, an annual conference down in New Mexico. And so we, we hosted a viewing of it up here and our charge uh, as we left was go back to your home church and with two or three people, start praying once a week with candles and silently. Just make a space for it. Um, because just as it's also a recharge zone um, for, for your week on an individual level, it will change your church's congregation and remind us and is a call to us that when we come on Sunday mornings, that we also, when we leave, there has to be mission on a relational basis. It's not just cutting a check um, because a check won't do in God's kingdom. Um, it has to be relational. And this is, I mean, this is now getting too, too much because we've got to m- move on. Um, but this is where the Trinity comes in. The Trinity is a relation. God is always relational. Um, and so we as a body of, of Christ also have to be.